Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 387, recorded on Sunday the 15th of May 2022. From over the moon, I'm Norbert. In the land of women's rights, I'm Joe. Hey everyone, I'm Bill. And I'm George. First up in the news, we have NVIDIA transitioning, but there's a catch. Debian talks on free, Ubuntu has new ISOs, and we have some Docker news. In security and privacy, Intel has a new microcode release. Then in our wanderings, Joe lost an election, I look out to the stars, Bill has been hard at work migrating Mincast. In our inert section, we discuss how we would build our own distros if we were to do so. And finally, at the feedback and a couple of suggestions. All right, we have some very interesting news that probably most people have already heard about, but we would like to And do I our take on it. I get to read it. I get to yes, read you do. it. All right, so Go NVIDIA ahead. transitioning to official open source Linux GPU kernel driver. This is from Michael Lerbel at Veronix. Uh, the day has finally come. NVIDIA is publishing their Linux GPU kernel modules as open source. With the success of AMD's open source driver effort going on for more than a decade, many have been calling for NVIDIA to open up their drivers. Their user, user space software remains closed source, but as of today, they have formally opened up their Linux GPU kernel modules under the MIT slash GPL dual license. This isn't limited to just Tegra or so but spans not only their desktop graphics, but is already production-ready for data center GPU usage. The kernel module consists of, uh, one, the NVIDIA kernel driver, two, the NVIDIA DRM integration, three, the NVIDIA mode set driver for display slash mode setting, and four, an NVIDIA UVM for unified video memory. The community behind Nuvo, which is the uh, open source reverse engineered official NVIDIA GPU driver, prospects around this... Unofficial. Unofficial. Did I say official? Okay, unofficial yeah. NVIDIA GPU driver. Prospects around this new kernel as they may be able to utilize the GSP firmware open kernel modules. But first will likely take time for the GSP firmware interface to be stabilized and other factors. NVIDIA announcement says, and we quote, this release is a big step in improving the experience of using NVIDIA GPUs in Linux, enabling tighter integration with the OS, as well as empowering developers to debug, integrate, and contribute back. It also looks like enterprise data center use played a role in the strategy Uh, with also taking up confidential computing and how the data center GPU support is already considered production quality ahead of workstation and consumer GeForce GPU support. It should be it should be uh, made clear, and I don't feel like it was right here, that this is in basically alpha stage at this point. The workstation one, yeah, because the data I mean, center what, what uh, modules are, are in a better shape. Right. And from what I understand, it's mostly going to be supported by chipsets made in 
2018 in, in newer. Yes, yeah. yes, that's when I said there's a catch. I think there's more like three catches in here, and that's one of them because I have a 1060, which is older than it, so it, it it's not supported by what they announced. Maybe they will have support for for previous cards, but I'm not sure. Uh, so the the sixty hundred the sixty hundred series and the twenty hundred series of GPUs and onwards, those are supported. The other catch is that uh, most of the important code that uh, Nvidia, so what makes Nvidia GPUs basically go, has been moved to the firmware. So and that's not open source. So this is this is a first step. And I feel like it is going to be a very slow process, but uh, now there's the chances of someday having a fully open source NVIDIA uh, GPU driver has dramatically increased. Well, the third catch is that uh, while it's open source, there will not be a per commit history on GitHub. So uh, they will just have yeah. one big data dump per release so they are not they are going to use github to host the code but they're not going to use it as a uh, commit hist- to have a commit history so are you saying they're not adding the past commit history or they're not they're obviously keeping the new commit history right you're not getting the old none of the they don't not they're not adding the the history but there there will not be a commit history on words either so what's so, better that or people like gnome that pretend as though they accept contributions when they just don't what do you mean gnome doesn't accept contributions <laughs> well for, for people that are outside of the the blessed realm of, of people that understand their uh how they want things their their design philosophy and things yeah but if, if the nvidia code is hosted on github you'll get the commit history from now on right they're not no because it will just be one big commit every time they have a new release oh so they're not accepting outside contributions they will but uh, not uh, i guess not through github uh, pull requests they are they will be doing it uh, with some via some other means is what i understand they they said they are looking for a way to contribute well, to to credit contributors, obviously the most safe for way would be just to just uh, co- GitHub commit history, but they're not doing that apparently. Huh. Interesting. I didn't know that. I'm I'm not a developer. I haven't really used GitHub for other things for things other than just hosting my dot files. But uh, I mean, this seems like a very Nvidia thing to do. Well, well, I don't think you're gonna get the history, right? Like even even projects that get open source you usually almost never get the history, or you get a uh, sanitized version of it, because usually for legal reasons, there's like a point where you have to like clean stuff up. So I think we're expecting not to get three years worth of like, you know, commit log or whatever. Um, but I am very interested in what the contribution framework is going to be. Yeah. Like, do you sign something and then send it to NVIDIA and then they integrate it? That's a good question. I, I think I we'll think... we'll have uh, more info on that as things as time goes on proceed because it's, it's I think it's too early because they they are still setting this up. They have a repo, but they are based on what they announced. They will probably not uh, accept contributions through GitHub. Oh, some here we other go. Means. Found it. It's contributing.md right in the root. 
Uh, for the next while, we're going to focus on review on pull requests of functional changes. So it sounds like they are doing that. Please refrain from further cosmetic pull requests until we publish our style guide. And then there's about 50 open pull requests and 38 have been closed. So what would be the reason a lot to of them are release this with a dual license like that? Is it because there's elements that they that they can't really GPL or? Yeah, that's that's my theory is that in the 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 code that they haven't open sourced yet, the firmware, there might be that some code that they don't uh, fully own, and it would be really difficult for them to open source. And right now, maybe they don't feel like maybe they're working on it, or maybe they still think it's not worth their time because, uh, as far as as much as it pains me to say. Nvidia Linux desktop users are a tiny market compared to the the server market. So, but if the Steam Deck becomes a big success long term, maybe Nvidia will want a similar device to have their hardware in it. So, in order for that to happen, they have to uh, improve the uh, the drivers. Uh, so that's my theory that they are just waiting and they're to see how if uh, supporting Linux desktop uh, GPUs GPU usage will be more uh, profitable for them. Yeah, it. I guess time will tell on this. I think it. So it kind of brings them on par, though. I mean, leaving leaving all the yeah details aside it brings them on par with amd because can mm. I, uh, correct me if i'm wrong amd even relies on some proprietary bits in the uh yeah you're, you're gonna get package. you're gonna get proprietary firmware i mean that ship sailed a long time ago you're yeah. gonna get a shim that talks to the kernel and keeps your linux distro happy and then it loads some proprietary blob mm-hmm. yeah so and then that's it yeah I, mm-hmm. I think we should just be happy with that you know or you know, at least satisfied i know a lot of people are like oh i wish the whole thing was open and a you know that's not how the world works anymore unfortunately but think of all the problems you've ever had setting up yeah. someone with like an NVIDIA lap, just laptops alone will finally like, you know, and there's a lot of work. Christian Schaller from Red Hat kind of outlined in his blog, the stuff that needs to happen. And there's a lot of stuff. There's like a lot of work that needs to happen, right? Cause it touches every well, part of the stack and all that kind of good stuff. But it, it's gotten a lot easier to set up NVIDIA in the last couple of years compared yeah. to what it was like five years ago. I mean, but you can you can still run into trouble if you update yeah. a kernel or you, yeah, an Xorg hybrid uh, graphics version. is a whole lot easier to set up now than it was yeah. five years ago. I will say about the proprietary with the drivers is that I'm using them and I don't really have any problem with them. If Nuvo ends up being as good as this one is for my 1060, which is not. Uh, for now, it looks like it won't be supported by the open source modules. If Nuvo benefits from it and gets better support for the the, the 10 series cards, I think I might uh, uh, start using Nuvo. But yeah. Um, so we'll still have to install Nuvo. It won't like go into the Mesa. I'm not sure thing well eventually it'll just be like how it is with amd now right there'll be the kernel piece which is amd gpu and this is what they're kind of announcing even though this isn't the thing that they're going to merge into the kernel and then they'll have to have someone's going to have to write the equivalent of rad v for nvidia right and then adding the mesa support 
but it also does mean that for all three GPU vendors, you'll just install your distro and you'll install Steam and then whatever. You don't have to go get drivers. That'll be so. That'll oh be man, yeah. Weird. It, so, <laughs> so I don't. You know, like the attitude I'm kind of taking is like, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe your 1060 won't ever get there, but whatever your next GPU is or the one after yeah. that is probably. You know, like if I had to buy a GPU today, a discrete GPU, it'd still be an AMD one, right? But I could, you know, in two generations, you know, by yeah, then Intel is... will be more mature and you'll have NVIDIA. So who knows? I think that's, you know, that's a pretty good, it's fantastic. Uh, good trade off there. I read some interesting numbers on Foronix. Uh, they say that with the 5.19 merge window coming up, uh, they looked at the numbers and the AMD graphics driver is, has surpassed 4 million lines of code in Linux 5.19, while Nvidia opened up uh, at 1 million lines of code. So it's it's just, just numbers. Also, uh, Nitrix Linux, uh, the new release of Nitrix, uh, they now added a, an Nvidia ISO. So for now, that seems to be the the best uh, middle ground to just provide an ISO with the NVIDIA drivers pre-installed so users don't have to deal with that. Maybe even Ubuntu could do that. I'm not sure about the legal. Uh, uh, I think they'll just mainline it in the distro. I mean, from what I read in the announcement, it looks like Canonical, Red Hat, and no, SUSE. Will... I mean, the the current, uh, current uh, closed source drivers. Because we won't really be getting a proper open source NVIDIA driver in the oh, kernel for oh, at least, okay. at least yeah, uh, yeah. for many months. Yeah, I think the so beta driver year, will go how they normally go, however you get normal updates in your distro, right? Probably, yeah. And then if you're on the LTS, it'll all just be backported. Yeah. So, all right, moving on to the next thing. This is... Uh, Related to the previous uh, piece of news in a way, Debian considers including non-free drivers in their official ISOs. And uh, this is from Foronix, but uh, it's quoting uh, an article from Steve McIntyre's blog, who is a Debian developer. So the one of the big problems with Debian is that their official ISO comes with doesn't include the much need the uh, non-free firmware that is needed for example to get wi-fi working on many laptops and when i first time i tried installing debian on my laptop i had this issue where it said we don't have the firmware for for your uh, uh, network cards Uh, please download them from the debian website and put them on a usb drive and we can load it from there the alternative is to just include to download the unofficial ISO from Debian, which includes it already, but that ISO is very, very well hidden in their website. So they are, and nowadays it's, if you're installing Debian on a laptop and you want to have Wi-Fi, you're very likely going to have this issue. Uh, and probably with other hardware, but it's the Wi-Fi drivers that are, the Wi-Fi firmware that is usually uh, mentioned when this comes up. And uh, Steve McIntyre uh, listed a couple of options that they might take. One of them is to just keep the existing setup, which is you go to debian.org and there's a download button which downloads the net installer uh, without the official ISO that doesn't have the non free firmware. It's it's not a very good uh, it's not it's it's not very good because people don't know where to go for the uh, unofficial community maintained uh, ISO will 
have a hard time setting up Wi-Fi. We could also just stop providing the non-free unofficial images, but that would make it more difficult because then the only way would be to download the the, the archive of of uh, firmware, put them on an, another USB drive. So you would have to have two USB drives for the installation. We could. Uh, this, this is this this is a quote from his blog. We could stop pretending that the non-free images are unofficial and maybe move them alongside the non-free I- images so they are published together. But he also points out that this might be confusing in a way that people wouldn't understand why the the ISO with, without the, the firmware is still there in the first place. Or he says the images could technically simply just have the non-free. Uh, firmware into, included in the official image and add the firmware packages to the inputs list for those images which I think might be the most uh, straightforward way because Fedora also doesn't have no non-free software in their repositories but it's still the Fedora ISO still shipped with this firmware the files so I think if Fedora can do this while still being uh, while still holding true to their uh, philosophy on non-free software Debian could do as well or he, he he also lists a fifth option, which is they could split out the non-free firmware packages into a new non-free firmware component in the archive and allow a specific exception only to allow inclusion of those packages on a, on their official media. I'm not sure what this means. I think this is related to how they would build ISOs. And he, he says they would then generate only one set of official media, including those non-free firmware packages. So I'm not sure how this differs from the previous one, because... I the way I understand it in both ways they would just include the non-free firmware in their ISOs. The one problem with that non-free ISO is that you are getting everything. It's it's either you're getting nothing or you're getting everything, including a whole bunch of stuff that yes, you Yes, but don't. to be fair, it's the same with Fedora because if you do a full Fedora workstation install, it will install the firmware for a bunch of different types of uh, yeah. Uh, network cards. What I did is I just did a, when I did a minimal, I always do a minimal installation of Fedora because I like to tweak things and that doesn't include the firmware. So I had to connect my laptop to, to wire internet and I downloaded the firmware that is needed and specific for my uh, network card. So I don't have all of that on my uh, Fedora install, but I do have it on my Debian because I just went for the non-free Debian ISO because that's the easiest thing to do. How how big is the firmware in the FAT install? Uh, I can look at I can look at the size of the firmware. The firmware on the archive that only has the firmware. Let me give give me a minute. It's so. probably not in the real world a huge difference. Yeah, I have two hundred sixty megs on my Silverblue install. Is the size of user lib firmware? But they're compressed on disk. That's neat. I didn't know that. It's just a bunch oh. of .exe files. Debian has changed their website since the last time I've looked on here. Interesting. Where's the download button? Ah, there it is. And okay, so they have there's the firmware.zip on the Debian website which has all the dev files for this firmware and it's 110 megabytes. So it's not as it's not that much that many yeah that's that's nothing it's, compared to the hardware enablement yeah. you get out of it yeah yeah i wonder how much that is uh, once i i unzip it 
But I'm 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 on the the page here for thank you for downloading Debian, and there's a link right down here in the middle of the screen saying non-free firmware, and oh no, that just takes you to a. I thought there was a link oh. somewhere. Oh, here it okay, is. So I, I unzipped them and it's still 110 megabytes. So, but these are the the Debian the Debian installer files, not the installed firmware size. Yeah, I think yeah, I think at least for, make uh, an easier path to get to the non-free images. Arch recently split their firm, their Linux firmware package into multiple packages, and I think that that freed up uh, around 300 megabytes on people's systems. So I think they're the and the remaining firmware package, I think it takes up one or two hundred megabytes. So it's it seems to be between one and two hundred megabytes on Bistro. Well, cool. So it's not not that big. So moving on, Joe. Okay, Ubuntu twenty two ten Kinetic Kudu daily build ISOs are now available for download. This is from Nine to Five Linux. Now that Ubuntu 22.10 has a release schedule and a release date set in stone, it's time for Canonical to kick off the development cycle and start pushing daily build ISOs for early adopters and application developers. Dubbed Kinetic Kudo, Ubuntu 22.10 is slated for release later this year on October 20th, 2022. Now, Canonical published the very first daily build ISO images for Ubuntu 22.10, inviting early adopters and application developers interested in test driving the upcoming release to find and report bugs. Now, uh, it's been a while since I've done like a beta like that or anything, but uh, from what I, what I remember back in the day was, yeah, you could get those early releases, daily builds, but they were nothing like the end product. Can you just install a very early daily ISO and up, keep updating it, and you, it slowly, will you end up with the with the final system? Yeah, it would or, become the end. Or part. other cases when they have to change something that requires a reinstall. Um, that does happen sometimes, and they do also recommend sometimes that even if your dailies do make it all the way to the end, that uh, once the final comes out, that you do a complete reinstall. What I would be more interested in is. Uh, trying GNOME 43 as soon as it as it happens as it uh, drops uh, what would be the best way to do that because I've heard that because they made they managed to get yeah no I mean even even sooner so maybe like a development uh, version because I've they managed to get GNOME 42 into Ubuntu 22.04 so I assume uh, 22.10 might have GNOME 43 so does it mean the at one point the daily ISOs for Ubuntu twenty two ten will just get the alpha or beta release of Num forty three? That I don't yeah, know. but that usually happens later in the cycle. That'll mm -hmm. happen around Augustish so, usually. So if I want to try Num forty three development uh, versions as soon as possible, should I just go for Fedora Silverblue or something? Uh, I, I would do I would do GNOME OS. I think they generate daily images. Let me look. Yeah, but that's uh, there's not really a way to install it alongside another OS so I would just have to do it in, in boxes yeah 
Yes, but yeah. uh, that way I wouldn't. I'm not sure if I could try the. Uh, they they will have the the two dimensional gestures, so we will be able to do a diagonal gesture and uh, switch workplaces, and open the the overview at the same time. So don't have to do two separate uh, gestures. So it, I'm interested because it will feel more natural and it will be best better for my tablet. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't. I don't. You'll definitely get GNOME 42. It'll just be later in the cycle. Like if you were to install mm -hmm. it today, you'll probably just get what's in the LTS. So basically, if I if I were to install daily for for 2210, I would just get the packages from 2204, and they would just gradually uh, yeah. upgrade to the yeah. new ones. And then over time, at some point, the desktop team will be like, okay, we need to start putting in the newer versions, and then you'll just get them as daily updates, and then eventually that will become the final one. Okay. Fedora's the same when, way, but that happens in in Rawhide, I think. And I don't know what so the I, status when is. When I said Blue, I meant, uh, should I install Rawhide? Yeah, the thing is, Rawhide, Rawhide's a little aggressive, man. Like yeah, it's, it's uh, <laughs> not meant to be... Yeah. It's not meant to be used, but... Yeah, for uh, sure, yeah. that's a VM. I recommend that one as be a VM. I'm not sure if I can try the new gestures in a VM, though. Mm, fair enough. Who wants to take the, the, fifth, the next one? about docker oh docker docker desktop is now here for linux users and this is from its foss docker desktop is the easiest way to containerize applications you do not need to think about setting up an environment on the platform or of your choice to get started. The Docker desktop application comes with container tools like Kubernetes, Docker, Docker Compose, Build Kit, and vulnerability scanning. Previously, it was available for Windows and Mac OS only. So Linux users were restricted to the Docker engine to create, test their Docker containers. Uh, to mention some highlights, as a developer on Docker or on Linux desktop, you can now access new features using Docker extensions, uh, seamlessly integrate with Kubernetes, and easily manage and organize volume containers and images. Yeah. So is that cool or not? I'm not sure. It's been uh, a while. I wanted yeah. to. Bill, you said that you stop using the Snap version, the Snap f uh, of uh, Nextcloud. Are you just using the native package, or are you using Docker for that? Well, I've got a Docker image on this server, and it's running native on this one. <laughs> and the native one is the one that we're going to be using for the show now. And that was just because I wasn't, like I was talking to George about a little while ago. I wasn't real comfortable with the the way the cron job works and the Docker mm -hmm. image, but. To be fair, that Docker image, once you get it up and running correctly, it just done forever. It's fantastic. You're done forever. Yeah, it's you, great. They've got the Docker Compose right there on their GitHub page that, that uh, I mean, you just pair it up. Okay, you, you pull the MySQL image and the, the Docker image, and those two link up with each other. And... Uh, so this Docker desktop that was raised, it it doesn't really have anything to do with running Docker headless system. It's no, just that's more of a GUI thing, isn't it? For yeah, like the container GUI. or something. Yeah, yeah. So I it, I it think the important GUI. the important thing here is I think a lot of people 
Docker, the command, has always been on Linux. Like, why do we need the GUI or whatever? But I think it's important also for organizations that have documentation, right? Or developers yeah. who are like, this is how you set up Docker on your work laptop or whatever. And they have their OS 10 instructions. You know, now like the Linux one will be like just similar. So you could just double click and get a Kubernetes cluster. I think is awesome. That's fantastic. Right. I wonder, though, for just your average person that's running a few containers, the the cat's been out of the bag so long, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely uh, they should have delivered this years ago, but I'm, right. I'm glad they got it together. I mean, yeah, you know. Because it was it wasn't real clear for a real long time whether they were even trying or, or moving towards releasing that so people yeah. just kind of they're like the, you're a linux nerd just use the cli yeah right yeah they, they just kind of counted on us to know what we were doing mm -hmm. and we kind of did but at the same time for serious deployments with kubernetes and setting up you know real complicated clusters and things like that it's nice to have yeah it's just you and click then, a button and you have kubernetes i mean yeah what's not to love so yeah that is that is kind of cool I don't know that I'll ever have any use for it personally, but then again, the only reason I don't know that is because it hasn't existed for me. So, you know, once I look at it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's interesting, and then go from there. Docker is worth learning, folks. If you if you have any kind of uh, server needs whatsoever or you just you're wanting to spin up next cloud or jellyfin jellyfin is the other big one i use it for because it's the it's the absolute easiest way to get that up and running and it just runs flawlessly and it's worth learning how to make work because it's it is a real cool way to get something working and and like like flat packs like snaps it works you know it's design is based on the idea that you can containerize all of the runtimes and the dependencies and tool chains that an application needs. And then you don't have to worry about your host system uh, getting out of step with, with the application itself because the only thing your host system is sharing with that container is the kernel. And beyond that, it's it's got everything it needs. So yeah, it's it's a cool thing to learn how to get working. And it's not it's not all that complicated because most everything that works well is copy pasta anyway, right from the the Docker Hub or the uh, the GitHub page associated with it. So anyway, moving on to uh, security and security. privacy. And I got a roll, guys. So. I will uh, catch you all next time or? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And awesome. the next time and the next time. <laughs> all right. Cheers. <laughs> yep. We'll Bye. see you. Folks, that was uh, George Castro. Many of you might know him from shows like uh, uh, Bad Voltage Fame and, oh gosh, he's been on several. Um, but we were real lucky to have him. So anyway, I'm sorry, Norbert. Go ahead. Intel releases new CPU microcode for latest security advisory. CVE 2022-2151. Uh, this is from Forarix. In addition to all the product announcements made for Intel Vision 2022 in Texas today, Mark's patch to... Uh, there was also a new round of security disclosures from Intel. This month there, there are 16 new advisories. Am I reading that word right? Advisories? Advisories? Yes, that is correct. 
here. This month there were, this month there were 60 new advisories for addressing 41 vulnerabilities affecting their software and hardware. 76% of those vulnerabilities were found by Intel engineers. Yielding the new CPU microcode drop today is Intel SA000617 slash CV2022-21151. This medium-rated security advisory is due to a security issue with some Intel CPUs that could lead to information disclosure via local access. The issue is described as processor optimization removal or modification of security-critical code for some Intel processors may allow an authentic... an authenticated user to potentially enable information disclosure via local access. The new CPU microcode published today takes care of that problem. The Intel for Linux 2022-05-10 microcode release is in addition to that security fix has various functional issues resolved too. This is their first Linux microcode CPU drop for Elder Lake processors while the updated CPU platforms range from Skylake and Valley, v- and Valley View through Rocket Lake and Tiger Lake. The updated Intel microcode the updated, the updated Intel CPU microcode for Linux users can be found by GitHub while, uh, okay, Windows is likely update, Windows update. Okay, so that's not relevant. It's, it's interesting, uh, because, so this is also sort of ties into our discussion about uh, non-free uh, firmware and microcode, because if you install Debian via the non-free ISO, they, it doesn't have the microcode by default. Uh, neither do, neither does, for example, Arch, or if you do a, a custom minimal installation of Fedora, does, that doesn't have it either. But if you have a, a regular full uh, Fedora install, it will have it. But I wonder if the, uh, the non-free Debian ISO includes it. I will have to look into that. So, yes. When I first time, when I installed Arch for the first time, I asked my friend, so there's this microcode thing, should I install this one? And he said yes, because it just, it just updated security. So in case, in case it doesn't, so in, in case someone doesn't have microcode on their system, uh, it's, it's encouraged to install it. Does anyone have anything to add to this? Nope. Moving on. To the bi-weekly wanderings. Yeah. And first up, it's Joe's turn. Yep. Well, the election is over, and I lost. But I think I did well, considering that I was up against a long-term incumbent that had a lot of financial backing. My team was good, and I loved all the outpouring of support that I got, but in the end, I received 37% of the vote. I still think it was good, considering that I am mostly an unknown. But I do have to say that I did enjoy campaigning. Um, I don't know that I would want to do it again, but it was definitely different from my normal. Hopefully with the campaign being over, I should be able to get back to doing some projects that I enjoy. I have a Mac to finish taking apart, even though I don't think that I'll get it fixed. Just, you know, my unfamiliarity and the luck I've had with tracing problems on boards. I also have that um, XPS that still won't work from the battery. Um, that's going to be expensive to get to the next stage of testing, though. So it's probably going to sit for a while because the next stage of testing on that would involve um, getting a working one and checking and verifying that the uh, batteries that I have that I've tried to replace in there are not the problem because three different batteries all the same problem would not you charge those batteries 
and would not power from those batteries even when I could verify that they had like 70% charge. So it's going to end up sitting for a bit. Oh, I'll probably still use it even though I just have to use it plugged in. And I am planning on doing more videos of the projects that I'm working on and putting them on YouTube, maybe sharing them on Facebook. Um, even if no one watches or if they end up all being very similar, I still want to practice and, uh, and I want to be putting them up. I figure even if the first few dozen are terrible, eventually I'll get better and someday it'll be something watchable. Um, my son got a new laptop through a Texas program for kids with disabilities to help with school. He ended up with an extremely nice MSI gaming laptop with an 11th gen i7 processor, 16 gigabytes of RAM, and a 3050. It's beautiful and should last him several years. And it's going to end up staying running Windows for the foreseeable future. Uh, I know, but it does support the new open source yeah, kernel modules. Yeah, and I know what will happen um, if I try to put Linux on there. It's just going to be a fight with the school systems every time he tries to turn something in. Every time something doesn't work for whatever reason or they can't figure out an application, it's going to be Linux's fault and I'm just not going to add that barrier for him. Um, now, I'm also getting a new laptop from work with a 10th Gen i5 and 16 gig of RAM. Um, I'm getting it because the new area that I'm being moved to in the office does not have the thin clients like the previous area that I was in. Um, I'm also working on getting back a temporary exception so that I don't have to go to the office until um, we know more about how the numbers will be at the office and in Texas in regards to COVID since my middle child is immune compromised. Um, I'd obviously prefer to run my own laptop, but they're not doing a bring your own device program at work. So since I won't technically own that laptop, it's also going to have Windows on it and that's not going to change. And that's really all that I've been up to. I'll let you know more once I get the laptop. Well, if you if you decide to run uh, if you decide to run again in the future, you would have the benefit of uh, your name already being out there due to the previous campaign. Yes, and I, I think I could probably do well if I were to run like next year against a different opponent, or maybe in three years if. Um, the person I was running against doesn't want to run again. She is older and maybe would want to retire one day. So um, I'll figure out when the time comes if I'm going to run again or not. Norbert, what have you been up to? Although technically at the university now we have uh, in-person teaching again, um, a lot of my classes are still online, but I did have a week of intensive uh, in-person uh, practical classes uh, two weeks ago. And uh, so I brought my laptop and I was running Fedora and I had to connect to the Wi-Fi to do the practical work. And the, the university Wi-Fi, it, the, authentic the authentication system is a kind of broken and I tried to connect, but it wouldn't the authentication would just fail every time. So what I did is just, I didn't uh, 
really think it would work, but I did still have the Debian partition on my laptop, so I just rebooted to Debian, did the same thing, and it connected on first try. So then I ended up using Debian for that one week, and after that week of practicals, I just stayed on Debian. I still don't, I don't think this really counts as this hoping, although I've been using Fedora for months and now I'm back on Debian, uh, in part due to in part because uh, Dave Miracle from Disruptors, I just uh, said that he had very good experience with uh, Debian testing running GNOME 42. And I think well, the reason why I didn't end up using my Debian installation a lot because it was running XFCE. And while I do prefer XFCE for everything on my desktop and I can't really get into GNOME, the GNOME workflow on my desktop, on my laptop is the opposite. I couldn't really get into using XFCE because I just like GNOME with a touchpad so much. So I just installed GNOME 42, which is surprisingly already in Debian testing. I, I think it's because how they managed to get uh, done the work for GNOME 42 to be in Ubuntu 22.04. So I think Debian testing might have benefited from that and it ended up getting GNOME 42 sooner than it would have otherwise. So, and it works uh, really well. I think even the Flatpak integration is better than I remember uh, with portals and stuff. So I think the experience is now on par with Fedora. It, it, I really don't think about which distro I'm in until I open the terminal and have to do a system upgrade. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So basically, I'm still on Fedora on all of my devices, but except my laptop where I'm back on Debian. And, uh, I also had a, a different, uh, uh, I also took another a class uh, at the university called Life on Exoplanets this semester because I needed uh, some extra credit and uh, I am a biology and I am a biologist uh, MSc student, but this particular uh, course was held by the Institute of Physics. So the... So it wasn't it wasn't held by the biologist, but an, uh, an, astro an astrophysicist, I think, or astronomist, and uh, it sort of got me interested in in astrophysics and just space in general. So I started looking for audiobooks that I might want to read. So I started looking. So I started looking for audiobooks about astrophysics that uh, I could give a listen, because lately I realized something. I want to minimize my consumption of short form video and audio and listen and watch longer things. Because my philosophy is that if you have 10 minutes of free time, instead of watching uh, like 10 one minute videos, it's more productive to watch one 10 minute video. Uh, so it's part of the reason why I guess why I never really tried TikTok at all. So uh, there's a couple of uh, channels I follow on YouTube that already do videos on, on uh, Astrophysics, for example. I really like Veritasium, and uh, I have a new habit of watching Veritasium videos while on the treadmill, which helps me uh, convince myself to get some exercise, because unfortunately I'm one of those people who don't really like doing much exercise. So I sort of have to occupy my mind with something else. So I just put up my my phone 
uh, on an elevated on an elevated something to be about head level eye level and i just listened to it while on the treadmill and i found an interesting podcast slash youtube series uh, on astrophysics which is called ask a spaceman and i will have to look up who the host is sorry one second so it's ask a spaceman by Paul M. Sutter. And I listened to a couple of episodes. These are very easy to digest uh, uh, episodes, around 30 minutes long. And in each one, he just uh, covers one question that uh, the listeners or watchers had. Stuff like, when did the first stars form? Or what happens when you fall into a black hole? And I like, I really like his, uh, the way he speaks about things. Uh, it's very engaging. So I can really recommend this to even people who have, I mean, I have never, I don't really have any experience in astrophysics. Uh, astrophysics is basically the study so, of how things work in space. Sorry? What happens when you fall into a black hole? Well, first you die and then you turn into spaghetti. No, it's... I guess, I guess, I guess it's the other way around. No, actually, but, uh, I guess now I, I will tell it because it was also covered in the the lectures uh, that I took at the university. So if you fall into a black hole, what people, because this, the the closer to you are to a strong, so to something that has a strong gravitational field, the more your time slows down. So for, if someone watches you fall into a black hole, they will see you approach the black hole, but you just start to slow down. And when you are approaching the event horizon, which is that there nothing can escape from, you appear to be almost frozen in time. So they never quite see you cross the event horizon. But because your time slows down, from your perspective, you see the universe around you speed up. So they see you slow down infinitely but at the same time you see everything speed up infinitely so if you are falling into a black hole and, uh, and you look away from the black hole out to the universe you see everything speed up and you basically see the entire his the entire future of, your, of the universe play out before you at least that's the theory and I, he, the host of the podcast, Paul M. Satter, says this is probably, if he could choose how he dies, this would be probably the coolest way uh, to die because he would be able to see everything, the future of the universe. So, yeah, and it's things like this that are... He, he explains things like this very that are very easy to understand. And he has a very entertaining uh, show, so I can recommend it to anyone. Uh, I have a couple of audiobooks on my list that I want to listen to but never had, such as uh, A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And coincidentally, there's another podcast that I can recommend, which is just called Ologies. And in each episode, it's basically an interview with some sort of ologist. So anything that's ends with, that ends with ends with ology, like biology, uh, astro, uh, cosmetology, uh, anything, entomology. So all sort of sci- branches of sciences. The host uh, Ellie Ward uh, invites scientists and interviews them. And I started really listening to listening to it from the beginning again and I just happened to get to the episode on cosmetology or is it cosmology? Cosmetology is it. so cosmology which is basically uh, astronomy and astrophysics and stuff and I, f- I wasn't looking for it but I found an audiobook by the person who she was interviewing 
I will have to blow that up. So it's the end of everything, astrophysically speaking, by Katie Mack, who she's a, well, she described herself as a cosmologist in the, in the podcast. So all of these audiobooks, uh, I'm looking into audiobooks because I like listening to stuff because then I can just be productive and doing something else uh, in the meanwhile. And I want to try to listen to more long form content rather than uh, it's still nice to listen to something that's uh, 30 minutes or maybe 20 minutes, like a very Tesson video or the the Ask a Spaceman podcast that I mentioned. But I want to try to I want to try to improve my at- attention span because uh, the other day I caught myself. I was just sitting on my bed uh, scrolling my phone and I realized that I only had one sock on. The reason why I sat down on the bed is to was to put on socks, but I put one of those them on, and then for some reason I just picked up my phone and started scrolling, and I forgot why I sat down. That was the point where I realized, okay, it it might be true that humans in general have a issue with uh, their attention span getting shorter nowadays. So I want to try and listen to more long form content and improve my attention span. And do I have anything else in my show notes? Uh oh I I upgraded to Federal 36 as soon as it came out on my uh on my desktop which runs XFCE and I was preparing to having to deal with Libad Weta because I thankfully the the there's there's a the gnome the gnome app that I use on gnome non-gnome systems the most is disks and it was one of those that uh, haven't been that hadn't been uh, ported to GTK for that so it could still use my system theme but for example there's the disk usage analyzer which is now using libidweta so it didn't follow my system theme but then I realized that you can still apply GTK themes to libidweta apps uh, it's not you're not supposed to do this according to the GNOME team because it's not supported, but in the file etsy slash, so slash etsy slash environment, you can uh, add gtk underscore theme, all caps, equals, and then the name of your gtk theme. And it will, it even overrides uh, if you have a gtk theme set in GNOME tweaks. So it's the most global setting for gtk themes there is. And if you do that, and you have a theme that works properly with the Libadweta apps, then you will be able to theme, if you want to, to theme Libadweta apps. I tried it on my laptop in GNOME, and uh, the theme I use is KUOS. I'm not sure how it's supposed to be pronounced. It's S-K-U-O-S. Uh, and it broke the it broke the, the layout of the settings apps. So it's, it, I think it's, it has GTK for support, but it doesn't have proper Libadweta support, so some, that's something you have to look out for in case you want to theme Libadweta apps, because I think but uh, so people had the uh, impression that Libadweta is the end to theming as we know it, but turns out you can still theme things while it, they are work. so the GNOME team is working on a, on a theming API. So I assume in the long run things will be sorted and if someone really wants to apply GTK theme they will be able to do so. So I can now run Libadweta apps uh, with my system team on XFCE. And going back to space a bit, I forgot to mention that the teacher at this course uh, he was talking about stuff like, uh, is the universe deterministic? Is there true free will? And he recommended a TV series called Devs, D-E-V-S, 
so it's short for developers, uh, which he said it was probably the best uh, TV show that came out in the past decade. So it's a miniseries, only eight episodes, and I gave it a watch, and it was I really enjoyed it. So the yeah, the I, that's I, the main. I, was gonna I ask don't. You about devs. Uh, yeah, I grabbed a copy so of it. I don't even want to say it's one of those shows where if I were to say anything, it might be spoilers, uh, which in itself uh, says a lot. I guess it's a very interesting sh- series. So the main premise is uh, is the universe deterministic? Is that true? Free will, and it also has something to do with quantum computers. Not the technical part of quantum computers, but there are quantum computers in it. So the premise is that it's set in a world where there have been more advancements in quantum computing. And is some people might be able to put together what the the synopsis is on based what I said, but uh, if someone likes good sci-fi, I can recommend this. It's eight eight episodes, eight hours, and it it was very entertaining. And I've also been drinking cold brew green tea because it's getting warm, and I like cold tea in the summer, and. Not all green tea. Sorry for the the sharp change of topic, but I just have a empty glass in front of me because I was drinking green tea, and I like green tea because you can even make a weak green tea and drink it instead of water. My philosophy is that people eat enough sugar to, so you should avoid drinking sugar. So whenever I don't feel like drinking water, I will just drink green tea. And if you just put some green tea leaves, loose green tea, uh, get steeps better in cold water. So the one I got uh, can be... So if you put the leaves in green in uh, cold water and, it, and it's ready in one hour. Maybe for other, some green teas you have to wait for two to three hours, but I like it because I I put it in the fridge, I close it up and it steeps and an hour later I can just have my tea ready. Yeah, that's a whole lot better so than coffee, it, which takes like 12 hours to properly steep while cold. I never tried cold brewing coffee, but I also haven't tried black tea. I've tried green tea and white tea. I also like white tea. And it turns out to be also good well when cold brewed. So, and I could uh, brew the tea regularly and wait for it to cool down, but uh, I've... The colder the water is, the less bitter the green tea gets. So if you cold brew green tea, uh, it it works especially well with Japanese green teas, but it's also with Chinese green. So if you have just green tea and you don't don't know where it comes from, it probably comes from China. And uh, so you you can even try with the tea bags, just cold brew them. It's a fun thing to experiment with. But on that note, I will hand it over to Bill. Well, all right. So, yeah. I don't know that my my last couple of weeks has been all that interesting, but it's been... Uh, well, yeah, it has been interesting. So, the migration for the show, the Mintcast migration, Odyssey, continues. Um, this week, I've worked on getting the cloud infrastructure up and running. That That is the new, the new cloud infrastructure. I had something working the other night and people were able to sign into it but uh i was having trouble with it because it's behind a reverse proxy and it wasn't trusting the reverse proxy so it wasn't allowing people to um create files on the next cloud or delete anything 
And so I decided uh, I was going to go ahead and tear that down and start over. Um, Nextcloud has a config.php file in in its config directory, uh, which tells it it's little it's a little different from like a WordPress installation in that Nextcloud will only open up for uh, domains that it trusts. So it keeps it keeps people from doing like a man in the middle type attack where they can spoof the uh, host name or something like that. So if you set up the host name, then you uh, generate the SSL certificate for it. Then this setting will keep it'll make sure that Nextcloud will only open for people that are connecting through that particular channel. Um, and I was having trouble because the way the way it's working now is I've got a, a, a static IP address coming into my house. I did that so that I could run the Nextcloud server and the web server. I've got the web server set up on a Raspberry Pi. Um, and it seems to work really well, but all of that was set up when I had a DHCP set up and I was using like a dynamic host name type thing. So I don't know if that's the reason I couldn't get it to, to work real well under the, uh, under the uh, reverse proxy or not, but I just decided to build it. Both of those things from the ground up again with the correct host names right from the beginning that we'll be using for the show that way it'll i'll know that it's actually built the way we need it um it's going to take some time um and this is all because several key elements of the show's infrastructure are ending on us at the same time as i've mentioned before um our uh, website provider was giving us some free service for whatever reason that came to an end and it seems as though they're really just a VPS um, that's been hosting the website and if you if you SSH into that VPS you'll see that it's running on Debian stretch and it's all the packages are way out of date so that we needed to we needed to come up with a solution that would get us back on track and more up to date well as we are right now the website is still on that service we were we did some work to get uh accounts switched over so that i could pay for it for a couple of months and keep it working while we uh switch things over to uh to an on-prem, I guess, if you will, solution where I've got it just running here on on my kit, and I can I can make sure that it stays up to date, and it's a and it's a zero cost option. That's really the crux of this whole thing. Is you know we we here are a zero income show. You know, meaning that we don't we don't ask for any money from our audience, and and, and as such, we don't have any money to spend on uh, infrastructure. So, the best way to handle infrastructure when you're a zero income show is to come up with zero income or zero cost options and that almost always involves doing things on your own and so that's that's been 
every option I've come up with has been uh, to that regard. Um, so just uh, long and short, um, I set up the uh, the static IP address. So if you was to do a ping on our website, now this is after I get it all done. If you do a ping on our website and then you do a ping on the uh, next cloud server, it'll be the exact same IP address because what's happening in is that traffic comes into my house on that static IP, the reverse proxy, which by the way, I'm using a really cool project called uh, Nginx proxy manager which is in a docker container and it basically runs an engine engine x reverse proxy but it gives you like a little gooey type thing on it on a web-based thing to uh help you set up all these proxy connections and it's an excellent project i recommend it to anybody that has that particular need because it also generates the SSL certificates for you and it keeps everything organized and and once it's up and running you know there's it's a set it and forget it kind of thing which is kind of cool but uh the thing about that is Nextcloud knows it's sitting behind that uh reverse proxy so it requires a little extra um configuration to keep it up and running so that's exactly what i'm working on right now in fact i've been spending all weekend trying to get this set up and running i've got until the 31st to have everything in place that is when the the google thing will come to its fruition and at that point um we will no longer be getting emails from our Mintcast at Mintcast.org email address from then on out. Anybody needing to or wanting to uh, email the show will have to use the Mintcast at gmail.com address. No big deal. It's just it's just a, a free email address. And uh, we will have our the, – the hosts will have our – individual email addresses available in the show notes and on the website we'll have to make sure that the website gets updated to reflect all that stuff as well um anyway that's that's all the crazy stuff i've been working on um we will keep everybody up to date as far as uh any information Oh, uh, as far as the YouTube channel goes, that's going to be like a straight transition where the channel doesn't really go away. It just gets transferred to another owner, if you will. It goes from being owned by the Mintcast.org Google account to the Mintcast at gmail.com. I've already set it up as an owner, but to set it up as a primary owner you have to wait seven days so that's we're in that seven day wait period right now so as far as the youtube channel goes there won't be any nobody will need to know or do anything uh for that to transition over it'll just that'll just all remain the same um the mp3 feed will not change because that's all that's all just a a feed coming from the website um 
so there's as far as as far as our viewers and our listeners are concerned nobody will have to know to do anything except if you want to write into the show you just have to send it to the mintcast at gmail so that's you know that i was glad to be able to make the transition as painless for the viewers for the listeners as possible but yet make it happen in a way that makes sense and and is uh effective so but that's all i've got on that right now and and we are very grateful because you did most of the heavy lifting well, yeah, well, to, uh, I, throughout the transition like yeah i've got a ways to go lifting. yet <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah i've got a ways to go yet uh to get it all up and running but when i do it's uh, it's going to be slick and maybe i can take a day off <laughs> But yeah, like I said, once it's up and running, um, listeners, viewers, the only thing you'll have to know is to start emailing. You could actually start doing that right now if you want. We've got the, uh, I check it from time to time. I've got it set up on my phone. You can email the show at mintcast at gmail.com. Apparently we've had it for a long time because I see emails on there from 2013. So we've had it for a long time. We just haven't used it because you know it's the at mintcast thing is is more professional sure but like i said when when you got zero money coming in you got to come up with things that are zero money going out otherwise you got to start asking money from people and i don't maybe in the future but i'm not real comfortable with if we can come up with a way of doing this without uh causing any friction in, in the community then that's well, what, would, what i would rather do donation site or something well moss has set up a sponsors okay. thing yeah. and uh for mitcast he's, or he's for himself yeah for mitcast okay. he's philosophically opposed to patreon i don't know i was kind of thinking patreon is the thing that more people probably know of yeah he's he's so, got a personal reason uh, for that, but you know that's something that we can talk about later on, I suppose. Yeah, but that's something everybody has to be comfortable with, you know, because there there are some people that are just not crazy about a show that asks for money, you know. And historically, we don't. So, you know that I I would be interested to hear from the community what you well what I know everybody we thinks. had at least one listener that offered. Uh, help us out for a year i can't remember which one it was on the telegram and i just saw it in passing but thank you i will look to see if i can find the specific person that offered that but uh we still want to try and get our costs as down to zero as possible yeah i mean yeah internet service isn't free but you know, it it really just costed me an extra thirteen dollars a month to get a business account with a static IP, and you get a, a, a bunch of other benefits along with that too. Like you you call up now now that I got a business account, if you call up customer service, a human being answers the phone. Let me let that sink in for a second. You call up and a human being answers. I see the confusion. I found a Telegram message uh, that was offering uh, to uh, support for 12 months. It was Oliver Kelly. 
Oh. Well, thank you, Oliver. I'd like to, if if anything like that was to happen, I I would like to set up a a system or, or a Patreon or a sponsors or something. Or a Kofi. <laughs> or a Kofi. That's one I haven't looked at. I just, I I think I'd want it to be. Spon- is sponsors that's the open source thing right that's got a, a, a more of an open back end but i think so i don't know much about any of them the only one i've got is patreon that i've coffee others just uh, one-time donations right i think you can set up to receive um weekly or monthly or whatever anybody wants to give you but um, no, yeah. I, I set up I my think... Kofi. It hasn't been used or anything. I haven't gotten any money from it or anything. But I, I set one up at um, because Leo had previously had one set up. So I took that as a recommendation to give it a try. I think having the option for monthly and one-time uh, donations is good because people have more options in case this, uh, in case we we decide to do this. Well, I think if we're gonna if we're gonna get serious about it, then we need to have every option that's out there because you have yeah. you'll have people that'll only do one thing and not the other so i mean that's mm-hmm. that sponsors paypal yeah. patreon yeah well who wants and to set up sponsors- you know, 70 different accounts and then set up one more because their podcast that they listen to right only uses exactly. such and such yeah. that was that was my argument with moss but moss has got he he you know we have to talk about Patreon. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that. Because it's probably the well, most uh, accessible. Let's, and it's, abs- let's it's absolutely the most. see what we can get our costs down to, and then that will let us know what we need for a year or a month or whatever, and then see if the community wants to help. I mean, because if we, if we was to put... Because I got to thinking, okay, what would... What would it cost to put the website on a digital ocean? And it's five bucks a month. It's like five bucks a month, you know. So we're not talking about gathering. I mean, if if just a few people donated like a dollar a month, right? Because then it you're would... not looking at much traffic that would go through there, which would be your main limitation with um, like digital ocean, because they. Well, by the way, the the bite mark thing was only set yeah. up with, with with very low resources. Yeah. that's only got one gig of ram and uh well you don't you don't need it the for good thing is that because the downloads happen no. through archive.org so yeah yep. that's the good thing so the uh, the audio file the audio files are not hosted on the mincast website so it doesn't have to have a huge amount of uh, data uh, bandwidth yeah absolutely correct but we're gonna we're gonna keep the community up to date as we go most of this is going to be in place by the end of this month and that is because it has to be yeah we will uh, figure out the... some solution and the show will continue on oh yes and just like it's gone through a lot of iterative changes over the last almost 15 years now so yeah 15 i thought it started in 2011 or is it much older than that 2008. Well, I thought it was 10 years old when I joined the show, and that's been oh, three then. years, so like 13 years or something. Yeah. Well, almost so four it's years. 2008 now. or 2000, so around 2008, probably. Something like that. I might be wrong. So that's just 
That's just two years after Mint Linux Mint uh, start released first. It's impressive. <laughs> yeah. When can we find you, Joe? Well, you can listen to me on a couple other shows. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show, which you can find at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, which you can find at linuxlugcast.com. You can send me an email directly, jb at mintcast.org, although I assume that has to change here shortly, and I will let you know what that's going to be next show, because I don't want emails getting lost, because I get so many emails <laughs> on my main email. I'm, I'm going to keep that going. I think every, I think every, uh, I think everyone... <laughs> could just send emails to the mintcast at gmail.com if they want to message someone, one of the hosts, because uh, that is so everyone can see everything. You can can set up the same kind of forwarding that you were using with mintcast.org. Like me, I have had people that emailed me and specifically said, hey, don't share this. Um, Just they just okay. wanted a conversation between me and them. So, uh, at the very okay. least, I will have an email up there. And then... Okay, so I, we will have, for the next episode, we should probably update our uh, contacts uh, so everyone should write there, provide a private email address for the for the yeah. wrap-up. And then yeah. um, I do have okay. a Kofi link in there, and then... Moss, who was not able to make the show today, if you want to catch him, you can catch him at Full Circle Weekly News, um, Distro Hopper's Digest, uh, Bard Moss at PM.me. Um, the contact. He's clever. He already has a a yep. private email. I, I don't think his. I think yeah. his um, uh, Mintcast email went away a while ago, and we just never brought it back. And then there's contact info on its Moss, and you can catch catch him at at zavala at hostux.social and I assume that's, that's, that's a, new. I assume that's a Mastodon uh, profile because it starts with an at symbol okay and Bill okay well you can you can email me at my good old wchauser at gmail.com I'm Bill underscore H on Discord, at WCHauser3 on Twitter, and I'm WCHauser3 on Facebook. Also, check out my, I say new podcast, uh, but it's not really all that new. Uh, check out Three Fat Truckers. Uh, check us out on 3ftpodcast.org. Um, and a quick plug for Moss's Full Circle Weekly News. That's got to be one of my one of my favorite news podcasts it's quick it's he gets a heck of a lot of information out there a lot of headlines so if you're just wanting the the quick and dirty and uh, move on with your day i i really recommend his show so how about you norbert well i would say that you can send me an email at norbert at mincast.org but since these emails are going away i should uh, set up a I will have to figure this out, but uh, I do read the Midcast Telegram group regularly, so in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with any of us, by the way, uh, I I really like the the Midcast Telegram community, so you should check that out. And Nishant couldn't join us today, but you can send him an email at nishant at midcast.org for the time being. You can find him him as Ghost on Instagram, Ghost at GitHub, Ghost.recon on Discord and Maverick00783 at Steam.
Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Josh Lowe for all of his work on the website, Hopstar for our logo, Initardi for the animated Discord logo, and Londoner for our time sync. Tony Hughes for our audio editing of the show, Archive.org for hosting our audio files, and finally, and the Linux Mint and the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mintcast.